This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Young Trisha, you know it's um, book club today. I do. I'm very excited. I have extraordinarily exciting and perplexing news for you. Okay. So do you remember Captain Corelli's Mandolin, 1994 book, Louis de Bernier? Of course. Who did not read that book? It was brilliant. Set in Kefalonia. In fact, it made Kefalonia so famous that the tourist board calls it Captain Corelli's Tranquil Isle on their own oh. website now. There was a film with Penelope Cruz and Nicolas Cage. Yes. So Louis de Bernier has now written another book about another place, which obviously one thinks may become as famous and fabulous. It's called Lights Over Liscard. <laughs> do you know where Liscard is? I do, because that's where you come from. I come from Liscard in Cornwall. All I'm saying is it's not Kefalonia, Trish. <laughs> I cannot see no. Penelope Cruz outside the Carlton Suite queuing up for a pasty. I mean, there's a spa. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to diss, as the teens would say, my hometown, but of all the places in Cornwall that you could write a romantic novel, he's written a book about all the eccentric characters a man who goes to redo a Cornish farmhouse meets. Well, I just wonder about the name. I'm sure he could have come up with something better. It's a bit Barbara Cartland. Lights over Liscard. I mean, there's been a few UFO sightings there because it is near Bodmin Moor. <laughs> and there's obviously the beast of Bodmin as well. Maybe that features you get eaten by that. It's like a really big Margot roaming around Cornwall, Trish. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife. I'm Lorraine Candy. And I'm Trish Halpin. If you're living in a hormonal hothouse, feeling a bit overwhelmed and in need of some positive, uplifting and comforting guidance on how to lead a more magnificent midlife, then this is the show for you. We chat to celebrities and experts on all things midlife, from menopause and perimenopause to parenting teens, via fashion, beauty, wellness, nutrition, fitness careers, relationships, caring for elderly relatives and your finances. Yes, we ask experts and famous guests all the questions you need answered to have a happier, healthier and more harmonious second act. Now my sticky hit, little friend, you and your sticky walking hips. I have to bring something into your life that I suspect we are both trying to avoid thinking about this early on in the year, but it is hurtling towards us at unstoppable speed. I know what you're going to say because I have worked it out. It's just 10 weeks away and Margot, Podcat, and I are already... Having a little mini panic attack about it, um, because you're going to mention the C word, aren't you, Christmas? Hit the nail on the head, Agent Halpin. Jingle bells, jingle bells. <laughs> no, it's not going to work. <laughs> it's that time of the year. And how do I know this, you may ask? Well, I was in the garden centre on Sunday, which is not a sentence I thought you would think I would ever say, but I was. And the whole place was decked out like Santa's grotto. I was, oh, I'm going to show you a picture at some point. It was just... Wall to wall, yes, red and white, funny little Santa people. Too early, elves, too early, too early, ridiculous. I mean, I thought I'd been hit on the head and then woken up in a coma about a month later. But <laughs> no, it was this Sunday. It is everywhere, for goodness snakes, as my uh, teenage son used to say when he was oh. speaking to me back in the day and he was cute, not grumpy like Yeah, you. that's a cute little phrase. But yes, I've had my first supermarket email. Um, I mean, I'm organised, but I'm not that organised. I don't think I need to uh, order a... Uh, to book the shop. Uh, yes, a tray of roasted vegetables just yet, do I? But um, we're going to be better prepared this year because we're going to talk to some experts about how to hack Christmas a little bit later, aren't we? Do, do you remember that? that? That's one of the things we're going to be doing this year? Are you going to tell me something that should be in my diary, but <laughs> I've forgotten because it doesn't involve hobnobs? With your, <laughs> yes, with your diary. Yeah, we're going to be at the Spirit of Christmas between the 30th and 5th of October at Olympia and London. 
Uh, we're going to be there on the 1st of November at 1.30, sharing advice on how to beat the Christmas frazzle. Okay, yes, I remember now. Are we going to be dressed as Santa and an elf? <laughs> you can go as Santa. Or maybe we should just go as elves. Are you bringing Margot? Pair of elves. You're going to be a special guest. We could auction her off as a Christmas present for our listeners. No, because she's obviously going to be your secret Santa present, so we can't do that. For our work's secret Santa, which is you, me... You, me and Ben, the producer. produce. <laughs> no, anyway, lovely listeners, if you are around and fancy popping into our little grotto, uh, do come and say hello. Yeah, well, I'm going to need some extra pumps for the old HRT on that day, I suspect, Trish, especially if it involves any kind of elf tights. Anyway, speaking of amazing things that Trish and Lorraine are now doing in their new life as podcasters, how are your wrinkles this week after I um, ironed them out with that clothes steamer at the photo studio? Yes, you're being very silly. And we were steaming our clothes. And um, I wish I could say I look 25 again. But actually, all that titting about with the steamer didn't really get rid of any of the lines. And um, you'll find out exactly why we were titting about having our photos taken a little later on this season because we've got a new project. I'm going to call it a mini magazine. It's exciting. It is exciting. Mini magazine, you say. Well, more of that to come later. Anyway, I put that picture of the steamer shenanigans on Instagram and our crowd, they loved it. But we do have some seriously helpful plans and projects to announce soon. So keep your ears and eyes peeled. We should also tell our listeners quickly that the um, Careers Can Change webinar we hosted with the menopause GP, Dr. Nadira Arwal and Helen Tomlinson, the government's very first menopause employment champion, is available for you to see, isn't it? Yes, it is indeed. I probably should just quickly explain what Careers Can Change is because it's a little coalition, isn't it, of organisations and career experts um, which are helping women during midlife as they navigate career changes of course, often coincides with our menopause. We've got all that going on. And we launched it, didn't we? We launched we did. a coalition, this uh, Careers Can Change, at Postcards from Midlife Live earlier this year. Um, the website has links to all the organisations that can help you, as well as real-life career change stories. And it's for men too. It's not just for women. And you can watch the webinar on there if you weren't able to tune into the live event. But we had to over 200 people, a lot of people wanting to change their career. So do go to the website careerscanchange.org. Yeah, it was very helpful, actually. I found it really helpful. And I loved hearing Ben Von Crumpler. What a fabulous name that is. Amazing name. Uh, she came on to talk about how her menopause completely derailed her career, how she took time out to start all over again in a new career. And I think the way she described it will resonate with so many women. It was a complete reset for her and she had lots of advice for you all too. Yes, we had a lovely message from one of the attendees, Helen, who joined our Facebook group afterwards saying, just watching Careers Can Change webinar and so relieved to find a group where I fit bang in the middle of all the issues. We need to help each other. We do, Helen, we do need to help each other. So we're going to put up the links and details on the Facebook group. Talking of helping others, you may have all noticed an unexpected episode of the podcast pop up into your little phone last week. Um, it's one that we put together with the charity Plan International for International Day of the Girl on the 11th of October. Yes, it's brilliant, actually. And I was very proud to be involved because we met a fabulous young woman called Ava um, that the charity supports. And she's an aspiring journalist. So we let her take over the episode and ask us the questions, Trish, didn't we? And later in that day, we took her along to our meeting with Davina McCall, who uh, also gave us some really fantastic advice about her career. She had a little recording lesson with our lovely Ben, the producer. Anyway, we'd love you to listen to the episode and you can also see some behind the scenes action on our social media too. We're like a sort of all year round Santa's little helpers, <laughs> aren't we, Trish? Little helpers for women, roving about, solving problems, supporting people all day long. Yes, and we offer a little bit of thoughtful inspiration too. And this week's guest certainly comes under that category. Uh, so as we mentioned at the start of the episode, this is our season 10 book club. And we've nailed a rather famous and beloved author to come along and talk to us. Well, before we announce that, I'm going to stop you there, Trish, and mention some of the other writers we've been lucky enough to host on our book clubs um, in case new listeners have missed them. So we've had Pulitzer Prize winner Jennifer Egan, Lisa Tadeo, Catherine May, Jane Fallon, Freya North, Marianne Keys, Kathy Lett. I mean, the list is endless. Oh, and 
also the lovely Mike Gale, I think, who was our first book club. He was amazing as well. A man, a man, no less. Yes, we've been privileged to meet them all. And this week we have nabbed one of the most extraordinary and beautiful writers of our time, Raina Wynne. I don't think I know many people who haven't read or heard about the global bestseller, The Salt Path. I bought that for you, didn't I, Lorraine, if you recall. And it's uh, hard to get a book for you that you hadn't heard about. This was quite a few years ago. Very exciting because um, obviously we're set in Cornwall. (laughs) Cornwall and Christmas theme today, I'm feeling. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, and I think you could say that that book changed my life, actually, because it really reminded me what is important and what isn't important uh, in life. It's got a really special place in my heart. Because it tells the story of Raina's 630-mile walk from Somerset to Dorset via Devon and Cornwall with her husband, Moth. It is incredibly moving. And in actual fact, the NHS lists it on their website as a book that's good for your health because it details the power of reconnecting with the natural world, which we talk about all the time, don't we, Trish? Yeah, and I was really excited to talk to her about her new book, Landlines, which is another moving and incredibly powerful book about nature and its place in our lives as we age. But before we get to Raina, we've got our own personal midlife book club to share. It's Jibber Jabber, book club Jibber Jabber. There's so many good books launching this autumn. Lots of great fiction. Our list is huge, isn't it? But we can't go into it all. But do look on bookshop.org, which supports independent bookshops, as they do list all the really the best news stuff for you. I've already ordered uh, or bought The Fraud by Zadie Smith and Julia Me too. by Sandra Newman, which is a feminist take on 1984, George Orwell, because obviously Julia was the female character. Very highbrow of you, Trish. Well, I, you know, I like to mix it up a bit. You know how I am. I just got the paperback of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin, which you, well, you urged us all to read, didn't you? And I've also bought The Bee Sting by Paul Murray, which has had such Brilliant, brilliant reviews. It's a very big book, but um, I think we might, I mean, it's going to take me so long to read it, we might have to mention it next book club. Yeah. My tips for listeners this week are a little bit serious for me. Oh, I've gone a bit of a heavyweight Christmas elf oh, uh, around okay. this. Uh, but before I kick off, I'm also approaching death, Trish. Oh, I'm God. facing it up properly, so listen through to this. Now, I have had words with you about this. It keeps coming back. Where are you going, though? Let's let's get you to tip off listeners first on uh, something you've got. Well, I've got something rather sweet. Actually, coincidentally, we, obviously we've got Raina coming on shortly and it will be talking about nature a lot. I've got another nature one, which is The Hedgehog Diaries, a story of faith, hope and bristle by Sarah Sands. Now, we know Sarah Sands, don't we? As She was the editor of the Evening Standard Radio 4 Today programme. Incredible, obviously, journalist, very experienced. Amazing female journalist, yeah. I love her. Huge amount of respect for her. Anyway, she wrote this this really lovely book. Um, she's in her 60s. She was looking after her two-year-old grandson, and he was just fiddling about in her garden one day, and he discovered a hedgehog in the garden, in, in the bush. Hodgepig. Is that what you call them? Hodgepig. Hodgepig. Hodgepig <laughs> in the garden. And it was in a very bad way, so they took it the hedgehog in, and then they had to take it to the hedgehog uh, hospital, and uh, they named her Peggy. Now, at the same time, Sarah's 92-year-old father was dying. And it's this sort of parallel journey about the father and talking to him about Peggy's recovery, a lot about nature as a, a form of faith, lots about lovely hedgehogs because they really sort of in, in, oh. embedded. I mean, I don't think I've seen a hedgehog since I was a child, actually. You know what you don't do if you find a hedgehog in your garden? Use it to play tennis with <laughs> You don't put out a little saucer of milk, milk with bread no. in it. They're lactose intolerant. Full of the wrong bacteria, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. If you're trying to kind of help a little hedgehog in distress, because if you see them in the day, that means they are in distress and you need to get them to the hedgehog hospital people. You put out a little kitten biscuit. So I'd have to take one of Margot's little biscuits and uh, put it out there. She won't like that. No. And anyway... I digress, but it's really beautiful, beautiful little book, short read, uh, really nice. Good gift, lovely little gift, actually, stocking filler, lovely. Pam Ayres wrote a very good poem about a hedgehog, which will make you laugh out loud. It does involve a flymo, that's all I'm saying. (laughs) It's a classic Pam Ayres. I won't quote it here because it'll take away from the loveliness of the hedgehog story, but you should read it if you want a little perk me up. Okay, very nice. Now, I bring you a modern classic. 
which I have no idea why I've never read it, but it is an right. extraordinary, extraordinary book. And I think it's good, always good to recommend books that have been out uh, some time. So you might have read this, Trish. It's The Wide Sargasso Sea by Jean Rees. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Many years ago. Yes. Well, it was on all the uh, GCSEs, I think, yeah. for slightly younger than us um, Gen Xs. And it's what they call a parallel novel. So it's the novel that comes before Jane Eyre, Charlotte yes. Bronte's Jane yes. Eyre. So it's about um, a Creole girl, Antoinette, who grows up in 1830s Jamaica, and it's uh, Bertha Antoinette Rochester, who is obviously the woman in the attic, the first wife of Edward Rochester in uh, Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, the mad woman in the attic. But this book is so beautifully written. I mean, it's obviously about the abolition of slavery in the Caribbean as well. It's about white privilege. It's about empire. It's about the legacy of slavery. But it's also about Antoinette's family and this descent into madness as a woman. If you're if you're an other, if you belong to to neither, she was neither white. She was she wasn't black. She wasn't British. She wasn't Caribbean. And her mum had been her mother in in the novel had descended into madness. It's got black magic. It's got. I mean, he married her according to this book because she was so wealthy. So yes. Edward married yeah. her for her money and was unfaithful and treated her appallingly. It's just spellbinding, and I was I was so wrapped by it because I just wanted to know more about that era and that part of the world. And when you're reading it, she describes the heat so well that when you put the book down, you feel like you've got to go outside to cool down. It's it makes you feel like you're sat in this really humid, beautiful country. It was su- such an extraordinary read, and I had no idea that it was a literary classic. And then I went down a little uh, rabbit hole where Afua Hirsch does this amazing thing on BBC Sounds where, called The Essay. Um, lots of uh, women journalists feature on it. So, and she talks about what this book meant to her because she read it at 14 and then she read it again when she was in her 30s. And then I remembered it must have stayed in my mind. This is a massive name drop for you here. But, um, when I interviewed Margaret Atwood, before I left, I said to her when Testaments came out, I said, is there one book you think I should read that I probably haven't read? And she said, Wide Targasso Sea by Jean Reese. And it must have just bubbled around there and it hadn't come out. Yes, took a while. But it is so extraordinary. It's not a big book. And then the whole Jean Reese catalogue is pretty amazing. She was quite a character. Can I just bring up one other thing? She lived in Buding, Cornwall for five years. Oh, for God's sake. <laughs> Back to Cornwall every single time. Well, it's quite strange this because my sister gave me a Jean Reese book a few months ago and she gave me this little book it's like a little novella called A Voyage in the Dark and it's it's basically I think it's quite autobiographical it's about a, a young 18 year old woman girl who is sent to England from the West Indies after her father dies and she's working as a chorus girl it's so grey and cold and um, it's, you know, it's about men taking advantage and unhappy love affairs. And I think it is autobiographical. She had a really quite a tough yes. life. Although we think of her as being incredibly successful, which she was probably posthumously. Later in her life as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I just think reading about her, that's a voyage in the dark, reading and just Google a bit of Jean Reese. Google it also. She also wrote a short story called Sleep It Off Lady, which I think is the best title of a oh. short story ever. <laughs> I love the dialogue in this book, A Voyage in the Dark, as well. It's just really like, you know, how young woman, women would have really spoken in those times in the 1930s, um, not in the way that we're led to believe. What else is on your list? So my next one, oh, you're going to like this. Ghost Stories. Jeanette Winterson has written a book of ghost stories called Nightside. It's actually obviously fiction stories that she writes, but it's also her own encounters with the supernatural. And there's a bit of a tech AI element. So it's kind of very like for the modern day, apparently. I haven't read it yet. Can't wait to read it because I love a ghost story. I mean, best ghost story ever, Beloved by Toni Morrison. I would say. Probably that, yes. Yeah. Well, I'm addicted to ghost podcasts, as you know. Oh, yes, exactly. You are. And uh, yeah, so that one's about the ghost of a baby killed by its mother, so it wouldn't have to endure slavery, which is a really powerful story. And did you ever read Lincoln in the Bardo by George Saunders? Oh, I love that. I won the booker a few years ago, and it's basically about Abraham Lincoln's grief for when his son William died and all these ghosts that are in the graveyard. 
um, with his son, essentially, and him visiting Lincoln, visiting the graveyard. It's a beautiful book, really unusual. It's a spooky ghost. And there is um, a Jeanette Winterson interview in The Guardian where she talks about the ghosts she encountered, which, I mean, it just makes you believe there, there must be a sort of parallel world, doesn't it? Well, if Jeanette says it, I'm believing it. That's what I'm telling you. And, of course, we're in Halloween month. Spooky. Right, your next one. Well, this was recommended to me by a friend who works in publishing who calls me occasionally and says, have you read these books? You know, because you must read them. And they're, but it's a book I wouldn't probably normally have picked up, but it's called Let Us Descend by Jasmine Ward, uh, who's 45. She's a multi-award-winning professor of English in the US. She wrote Sing, Unburied Sing, which won the National Book Prize there, which was about a Mississippi family blighted by drugs and poverty. A little bit like Demon Copperhead. It was quite an extraordinary book. She is the only African-American woman to win this prize twice. Now, before I picked up Bessus Descend, I thought, well, I'll Google her because I don't know much about her. She wrote the most beautiful piece of Vanity Fair about her husband who died just before the pandemic. He was 33. He died of acute respiratory distress. So this was pre-pandemic. So it could or could not have been a very early case of COVID. They had two children. But I urge anyone to Google it and read it because it's, it's poetry. It's the most amazing piece in a magazine. But anyway, Let Us Descend uh, is an extraordinary book. It's, it's been called her best book yet. And she's really quite a lot bigger in the States, I think, than she is here. And it's about Annis, who is, it's about slavery. Again, this is the daughter of a white slaveholder who fathered her and sold her. And it's really about her journey from the day she is sold. And it's very much interwoven with nature. I mean, I'm about a third of the way through. The, on the back, the, the, it gets a really great review. It says, from one of the most singularly brilliant and beloved writers of her generation. This is a miracle of a novel that inscribes black American grief and joy into the very land, the rich but unforgiving forest swamps and rivers of the American South. So it's beautiful. Everybody must read it. And they might, I'm going to give it to my daughter, actually, to read as well. Oh, well, thank you for that, because I love discovering new writers when it comes so highly recommended. Yeah, yeah when a book publisher tells you to read it, you feel like it's an order, yeah. Yeah. Now, my third and last one, I can't pronounce it. I'm going to give it a go. I'm going to start by saying it's by Francis Spufford, who wrote Golden Hill. Do you remember that book? It came out about three or four years ago, and it was set in 1746, and it's about this young man uh, from the UK or Britain who goes to New York and the city at that point is uh, just 7,000 people and it's about his adventures and really brilliantly written, really, really enjoyable. Anyway, he's got a new one out and Francis himself is uh, British but he's got another one out that's also about America and it's, here we go, I'm going to try and pronounce it. We'll do it. Cahokia Jazz. Cahokia Jazz. C-A-H-O-K-I-A. Jazz. Basically, it's sort of historical, but he also reimagines, you know, that something didn't happen and what would have happened if this thing didn't happen. So he imagines that the variant of smallpox that the Europeans brought to North America, which killed 90 to 95% of the indigenous peoples in North America, he imagines that that hadn't happened. And so it's, it's all about this kind of fictional world and alternative history about you know, these indigenous communities and living in towns and all of this kind of thing. So it's really, I don't know, it sounds right up my street. I like something a bit historical, as you know, and I like something a bit complex. Just thought what he's writing is that he's got this really kind of, it's quite fun and humorous, as well as being very literary, which I really enjoyed. We should book swap these, shouldn't we? We should, Christmas. definitely. Yeah, like yes. the sound of that. Yeah. Your third one? Nonfiction. Yeah. This is death. Is this death? Yes. Oh, God, here we go. Do you know why I had to read it? I'm going to tell you about one of my dreams, because I know everybody loves to hear about other people's dreams. <laughs> I had one about Paul McCartney last night, but that's another story. That does sound upsetting. <laughs> I had a very upsetting dream where I was on the balcony of our home in Cornwall. I was watching a sunset, as we always do. And as I was watching it, I was aware of people around me chatting to me and it was a blazing sunset. It was absolutely glorious. And a lady leaned into my ear and said that this is your last one. This is the last one you will see what? ever. Oh, no. And I woke up and I oh. felt 
terrible. And I thought, right, I have got to get my head around this death situation. Yes. Because, yes. You know, for listeners who haven't been listening to us for four years, you know, I am uh, frequently talk about how absolutely terrified I am about it. And I almost can't even talk about it. I'm so frightened of it. Come on, what's the book? Let me finish. <laughs> oh, I have picked up Wendy Mitchell's One Last Thing, How to Live with the End in Mind. Now, amazing Wendy has uh, dementia. She's she worked as a clinical NHS clinical team leader for 20 years. She was diagnosed with early dementia at 58. She has two daughters. And she's written two big books that have been bestsellers about living with Alzheimer's positively. She's 67 now. So she talks in this book, which is very specifically about how to approach the end and how to talk to the people around you, particularly her daughters. I mean, one of her daughters is a palliative care nurse, I think. So she's aware of how to end and handle that time. But it's a really beautifully written book with lots and lots of stories about how to approach death and our thoughts around it. You know, one of the things I've learned so far is I thought hospices were places where people would go to die. And that's really not the case at all. Hospices are just, it's respite care for people in very serious situations who need kind of 24-hour care, need a break. And a lot of people leave hospices. You know, so there's a lot of myths being busted in this book. And there's a lots of language the way you use language around the end and what you're thinking about the end and the way other cultures do it. So that book is going to change my mind. Good. I'm going to ask you about that in an upcoming episode then of how Good. you're feeling. I'm going to check in with you on your death fear. Fixation, I think. Fixation. It, is it yes. needs to, I don't know, we need to, we need to deal with it. But I think before we finish Roundup Book Club, it would be remiss of us if we didn't mention that Jilly Cooper has a new book out. Tackle. Stand by your tackle. beds. Tackle, it's called, with an exclamation mark. <laughs> is it about fishing? No, I think it's, uh, well, what's she famous for? Her riding books, isn't it's she? It's more Show riding. It's, it's more riding. That's the double entendre of the horse tackle and the arm weight. The other type of tackle. That's my Christmas present sorted, Trish. Bonkbuster. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today's special guests will have inspired many of you to pull on your walking boots when life gets all too tough and head out into nature. Author of The Salt Path, The Wild Silence and Now Landlines, Raina Wynn could never have imagined that a series of life-changing events in 2013 would catapult her into homelessness, only for her to then become a multi-million selling author. Each of her books have captivated us with her personal love story with her husband Moth, their endurance in the face of the utmost adversity, as well as her beautiful descriptions of Britain's breathtaking landscapes, flora and fauna. Raina, now 60, grew up on a farm in Staffordshire, met Moth at college at the age of 18, and together they have a son, Tom, aged 34, and a daughter, Rowan, who is 32. She joins us today from her home in Cornwall to tell us the lessons she's learned from walking thousands of miles why nature can be our greatest healer, and how she's feeling about the A-list star about to play her in the story of her life. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife, Raina. It's lovely to be here and thanks for inviting me. Now, I think it's been about 10 years since you had the two major crises that 
propelled your life onto a totally different and unexpected track. Could you just set the scene for our listeners and can you just tell us what you think is fundamentally different in your life now and what remains the same? I think if I'm going to explain what happened at the very beginning, then I need to go back to when I was really, I was only 18. I I was a teenager in a college canteen in this crowded room and I looked up and there was this little parting in the heads of the people in the room and on the opposite side of the room there was this young man in this bright white shirt dipping a Mars bar in a cup of tea and just in that moment it was one of those amazing moments in life when I just knew he was the one strangely turned out to be because he's still here <laughs> yeah and we had this dream when we were young this dream that we would find a, a place in the hills that we could make our own, create a life that was on our terms in the way we wanted to live it. And by the time we were about 30, we found that place. It was a ruin in the Welsh hills with holes in the walls and a roof falling in, but it was everything we hoped for. And we spent the next 20 years of our lives restoring that property, converting outbuildings into holiday lets so visitors could come and stay and share our life and pay the bills. And our children grew up there. It was everything. It was everything we put all of our life into. But in the background of those 20 years, there was a a financial dispute with a lifetime friend that eventually turned into a court case that saw us being served with an eviction notice from that home. And they gave us a week, a week to pack 20 years of life into a box. And it was during that awful week that uh, my husband, Moth, had what we thought was going to be a just a routine hospital appointment. But it turned out to be anything but, because he was diagnosed with a neurodegenerative disease, corticobasal degeneration. It's an illness with no treatment and no cure and seriously life-limiting. And our life was just completely falling apart. That whole structure that we'd created over those 20 years had just gone within a week. And then... It was in the last moments we were about to leave the house. Bailiffs were knocking at the door and I spotted a book in a packing case. It was a book I'd read decades before um, about a young man that walked the southwest coast path with his dog. And just in that moment, yeah, just seemed like the most obvious thing to do. Fill a rucksack and go for a walk. And we did. And, and the story of that became the book The Salt Path. And then I've gone on to write other books since. There are three books now. Life has changed in so many ways, so many different ways. I have to talk about the book. I have to be public in ways I never did before, would never have dreamt of doing. But also, I still don't have that permanent home, those, those walls that you, you think of as home. But in so many ways, nothing has changed because Moth and I are still together, still working out what comes next. In a way, it was great in some ways because midlife, how many ch- times do people get the chance to start again? I suppose in your late 40s, early 50s, this is a massive midlife crossroads. And it is a bit of a crossroads anyway, midlife, isn't it? It's a bit of a reckoning with everything. What do you think you learned that you can pass on to people listening now who are at this kind of huge crossroads? Perhaps people going through a similar situation. There's, you know, there's a lot of divorce in midlife and, you know, people get made redundant. People do lose parts of themselves as well through circumstances not their own. What what's your advice to someone sitting in that place now? It is a difficult time of life. It's it's a time when it's not just that we're changing and everything's changing around us, but also that we start to just view things differently, we we see things differently, maybe with a, a different eye to the one we had earlier in our lives. And that midlife time, it came to me as we lost everything. So there was no, no moment to focus on how I felt about things, how I felt about myself, how I felt about the change that we were going through in every different respect. And I think maybe it's that sense of having to just continue through it that got us through it but now I think looking back how would I have dealt with that had I not been going through that time I think sometimes you've got to take a deep breath and you've got to just say I'm going to exist in this moment this moment right now and I'm not going to worry about all the things I haven't done up to this moment or what I might be striving towards in the future I'm just going to take this moment for what it is, and survive this day. 
And sometimes that's all you can do. And sometimes that's all you need to do. Because at the end of the day, when you've got through it, you can say, yes, I made it through that day. Tomorrow's going to be better. And it often is. <laughs> I think that's what really came across in this salt path of this idea that you were literally each day in the day, you weren't fearing the future almost. It was quite, um, it was quite uh, a lesson, I think, reading that book. It was really good. But now your new book, Landlines, um, we're going to talk about that. Before we do, uh, we'd love you to read an extract. So if you'd like to do that for us, Rena, that would be amazing. Okay. This piece from when we're in the very north of Scotland on the Cape Wrath Trail. There are moments in life when it's possibly better not to know what's coming. Like when you go on your first holiday with a boyfriend and your tent gets blown away in a storm and your dream trip turns into sharing a night in a plastic bag on the side of a mountain. Or you plan a June wedding, then it snows all day. Or you're evicted from a home you've spent 20 years building, just a few weeks after it's finished. Moths somehow summons the will and the strength to continue up into the gorge, which becomes ever steeper, ever narrower, along a tiny track, clinging to a near vertical slope. It's good not to know, as you scramble over boulders, gripping at vegetation for handholds your partner's vertigo will return abruptly, almost paralysing him with fear. But sometimes, those are the moments that can change the course of your life and lead to outcomes you could never have imagined as you shivered in that plastic bag, or filtered the wedding photos for the ones where you're not under an umbrella, or became homeless and found yourself sleeping wild on windswept headlands. Those are the moments we look back to and say, that's it. That's the moment when everything changed. There are moments which turn desperate, annoying or desolate experiences into an understanding that the person you share the plastic bag with is the one, that you have the ability to laugh at anything and that even having lost most of your material possessions, you can survive on love, hope and a packet of dried noodles. That's so beautiful. I mean, the whole book... We was gripping. I'm staying up really late to read it at night. It's fantastic landline. So it's about you and Moth walking and camping from the north of Scotland all the way back home to Cornwall. It's a slightly unexpected trip. Took lots of different turns and decisions you made on the way. When you wrote about Moth in the Salt Pass, you wrote about how the walking was hugely beneficial to his health and seemed to really help him in ways that he'd been told were never possible. Um, so why did you think taking him back out <laughs> on a very painful walk with blistered feet, aching shoulders, backpacks, all of that. Why did you think that would be the best thing to keep him going, which you describe in Landlines? What's, what do you think is going on uh, with him health-wise when he does the walking? It was so strange when we walked the Southwest Coast path. We'd been told that there was no way back with his illness, that it was a, a one-way journey and it was declining health all the way. We've been told he couldn't do stairs, hadn't he? That was the only only advice we were given. Don't get too tired and be careful with stairs. So we walked the southwest coast path, which is 630 miles, with a scent that's equivalent to climbing Everest nearly four times. Um, so quite a few stairs there. And weirdly, unexpectedly, about 200 miles into that walk, his health began to improve in all the ways we'd been told were impossible. So... At the beginning of landlines, we're in um, the final lockdown, COVID lockdown. It was the winter of 2021, and we weren't walking far enough for Moth. We were just going around the block like everyone else. We weren't walking very far. And his health really was declining to the point where it reached the worst point it's been, really. Worst in the respect that, that he had almost accepted that he was heading into those latter stages of the illness and almost accepting that that would be so. But I think I couldn't accept that. I couldn't accept the idea of that happening without trying one more time by taking another long walk and just seeing if it would have the same effect that it did that first time. I think it started from, that walk started from a day when I was putting some logs in the log basket and behind that was the bookshelf and I knocked some books off the bottom shelf and there were all the plastic-backed guidebooks to walks that we'd done or ones we, we'd always wanted to do and hadn't. There was the Coast Path one. It was all, like, rippled, like a beach when the tide goes out and full of 
sand and feathers and bits of string and held together with a hair bobble. And there was the, the Iceland one that we'd used when we were in Iceland. I opened that and it just smelt of sulfur and volcanoes. And, and then there was this other tiny little thin one that we'd never used. And it was a, a, a guidebook to the Cape Wrath Trail. That's the most isolated, most remote trail we have. Yeah. But it was one where Moffat always wanted to go, always wanted to spend time, but we'd never had time. So I thought, you know, if anywhere is going to encourage him to just try, just to give it one more go, it would be that trail because it was the one we'd always wanted to do together. So I just left the guidebook lying around the house, you know, kitchen, bathroom. And then they came when he came and slapped it on the worktop and said, going to Scotland, are we? (laughs) And I think my thinking was that it had worked before. And there was nothing else we could do. There, there was nothing else to try. It was the only thing that had helped his health. I'm asked all the time, obviously, by lots of people who suffer from yeah. neurodegenerative diseases, why? Why does his health improve? Well, we don't have a categorical black and white scientific answer to that. And I'm not a medical professional. But what I do know is that over a protracted period of time of moth doing extreme physical exercise out in the natural environment has repeatedly now, not just once, improved his health. I've been looking through lots and lots of, well, endless um, scientific research papers and I'm beginning to think that the answers are out there. They're just not strung together in one cohesive line because they're all looking for separate things. I've been working with a charity called PSPA. It's the it's the charity that covers CBD, which moth suffers from, and a very closely related but slightly more common illness, PSP. The two are lumped together in the same charity, and we're trying now to to raise funds, to raise awareness in order to attract funds, so that we can get the right research to target the right point of how does endurance training improve moth's health because we need the specific answer to that and without that i'm just plucking things out of the sky but we do think that the answers are there they just need bringing together and endurance i mean there's a lot of endurance going on in landlines (laughs) i mean from the blisters trench foot i think you practically got being eaten alive by midges walking through torrential rain Talk to us about pain and just taking the next step and going on it, because I think I'd probably give up. Trish, you couldn't have a blister on the tube. I'd have to take it home for a lie down. I love walking, but the idea of blister, you know, like, discomfort I have to be comfortable. I'm not going yeah. to discomfort. Those blisters, they were quite extreme. You'd think by now, having walked thousands of miles, I'd be able to buy a pair of boots that fit. <laughs> no, it seems to elude me. I just seem completely incapable of it. So I got these boots that seemed like the ideal thing. But by the end of the first day, and I took them off, I sort of took a layer of skin with them. And that was the first day on the Cape Wrath Trail. And as we walked through the highlands, I think I bought just about every packet of Compede blister plasters <laughs> in the north of Scotland. And I, I made these like Compede booties that, that I wore on my face. You stuck them all together. <laughs> Until I took them off. And then it, anyway, that's another story entirely. But... Every day when it was like, it was like stinging pain to put my feet to the ground, I kept thinking, if Moth can do this, if Moth can take that next step with everything that he's going through, if he can put up with the weight of his rucksack when his shoulders are in pain and his, his feet are losing their sensation, and I thought, I can put up with a few blisters. Now, looking back at it and looking at the photos, there weren't just a few blisters, but it's amazing what you can tell yourself. Yeah, it's that brain-body link, isn't it? It really is. I think you can, you can convince yourself you can get through anything for a while because you've told yourself you can. I think it's all there in that, like you say, the brain-body link. This book and all your books really are about our connection to nature, but a lot of us are city dwellers. We're not going to get the chance to live in the country, close to nature. And actually, a lot of us love being city dwellers. It's a kind of joyful, busy, energy-fueling thing. But 
we all know nature's incredibly important to us. How do we get that connection if it's not freely available? What what other ways are there to feel it in uh, for our listeners, do you think? It's a really tricky thing if you're in an inner city. I, I, I do understand my, my daughter lives in London, so she, she feels that herself as part of her everyday life. And it's really difficult. But I have been reading some really interesting things amongst all those many research papers. How people respond to even the sounds of nature, how we respond in physically respond in a really positive way to to just recordings of water and birds and the wind in the trees, and how better people feel if they have uh, pictures of the natural world on their on their walls. So it's been actually shown that people in hospitals recover more quickly if there are pictures of trees on their walls. It connects somehow to how we are just intrinsically part of the natural world, even if we live utterly separated from it, but we are part of it, even in our subconscious, we feel it. So open the window and um, listen. And listen, maybe not to the traffic, but to those moments when you can hear the birds or the wind or or water. I love when you describe in the book about when you're walking these paths and your feet, the kind of pressure of your feet is adding to the story of that path and the history of that path. It's a really beautiful way of thinking about your connection to land as well. Now, I wanted to ask you, because uh, it's a bit of a running theme on this podcast, we're trying to cure Lorraine of her fear of death. She's always doing death maths. (laughs) It's an ongoing uh, thing. Mm. Um, I mean, obviously, death is this obviously something on, on your mind, and I'm sure it must be in some way. And in the book, this beautiful sentence where you say, we walk away as darkness falls somewhere in the void between life and death, that place where we all exist. Tell us a bit about that. I think when someone close to you is diagnosed with something that is going to shorten their time with you dramatically, then death is obviously very much in your mind. It's very much like the elephant in the room constantly. And when you're first faced with that, it's shocking, it's frightening, it's it's all of those emotions that we don't want to feel. Fear, mainly, mainly a huge chunk of fear. But when Moth had his, was first given his diagnosis, we thought we'd only got a couple of years at best. Now, 10 years later, we've had quite a lot of time to dwell that question to sit with it for that elephant to maybe go outside in the garden occasionally I think what I'm saying there is having had time to not come to terms because I don't think you ever come to terms with death but to allow it to be something that we can accept does mean that we will always be here in this place between life and death but I think when you think about that that's where we all are we are all there because none of us know what's coming tomorrow. Anything could happen tomorrow. And so we all exist in that space, that space between life and death, because it's part of, it's part of being human. It's part of being a, a natural organism. It's that in the end, it's going to end. And I think we don't talk about death much in this country and we don't I think talk about it anywhere near enough for us to find a way of living with it but I think we need to live with the knowledge that this fantastic wonderful precious life isn't forever and there's something really special in that because it gives you the power to accept right now this moment as being absolutely fantastically as good as it gets because this moment's the only one we've got, really, when it comes down to it. And as you say, you can't really predict what might happen tomorrow. You can have literally no idea, which is what your story, the story of your life, is. How could you have predicted that you would be New York Times bestseller, that you would be globally famous? <laughs> and actually, when you went on your walk <laughs> uh, in landlines, people were coming up to you, talking to you about the woman who'd written this amazing book that had inspired them to go on their walks as well. I just how does that all feel? How have you worn that coat of celebrity, I guess? It's just been a really, really unexpected experience because prior to all of this, prior to the Salt Path being published, I was a really quite introspective person. I, I lived a very isolated life, always lived in a very rural area, didn't have much sort of interaction with big groups of people ever. So when the publishers told me I got to go out and do PR, 
for the book. I was absolutely horrified. I even tried to get the manuscript back, but by that time it was too late. <laughs> I, I was so, you know, horrified by it, really. But I think it's been probably one of the most enriching parts of our journey, meeting so many people, hearing their stories, I think. Because I've put my story out, and in a way they've brought a thousand back. It's felt like an honour, I think, to share other people's stories in that way. Quite a privilege. But when we were walking down the country, we did meet quite a few people who'd read The Salt Path and Wild Silence. People who weren't always necessarily happy about it. Uh, we met this group of um, ladies who were walking because it was one of them's 50th birthday. She'd, uh, she'd wanted to walk a long-distance path. She was on the West Highland Way, wanted to walk a long-distance path because she'd read The Salt Path. When I, I met this group of ladies, one of them said, Are you Raina Wynn? They said, I hate you. <laughs> I just wanted to go to a spa, but you, yeah. you, you made me walk. But later, later, we, we were eating chips outside the pub. Someone on the other table kept looking at our rucksacks and eventually came over and said, they're big rucksacks, you're walking a long way. And we were like, yeah, quite a way. He said, uh, I've read a book about that, walking. You should read it or change how you feel about packing big rucksacks like that. It's called Salt Path. Um, they lose the house and then he gets a brain tumour or something. He dies in the end, but it's good oh. That, did you correct him? No, no. I <laughs> I can remember stabbing moth under the table with a fork so he didn't say anything. <laughs> oh, now success, it's its a thing to be obviously enjoyed, a thing to adapt to and get used to, but it can have a, an impact on other people in your life. And do you think, has your success affected your relationship with moth in any way? Because it can be challenging in a couple when one of your stars is really rising. Moth and I, you know, we've we've been together since we were teenagers. We've been through most of what life throws at you. I say that, but there's always something else. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of things that life can throw at you. And we've we've found our way through them. And so the success of the book, it's been just an amazing thing. But it hasn't happened to me, it's happened to us. We've been together for so long now that it's sort of not like my life and his life. It's our life. So whatever happens to either of us happens to both of us. So the book, it's just a joy that we've shared together. We've shared it together. It's highs, it's lows, it's tricky bits. Just the same as we would share the failures in life. You know, that wouldn't be his failure or my failure. It would be like, oops, things have gone wrong for us. I think that's the way we've approached everything in life, not as individuals, but as a unit. Still individuals within that that unit. But because we decided to share our lives, not my success or his, but ours, and I think that's that's just the way it is. And what about your children, your son and your daughter? So you lost your home when they were at university and you had had a whole life before we heard about your life from that point. How has it affected them or what, what, how much part of it are they? Because it's their dad as well, isn't it? You know, it's their dad they may lose, it's their dad that they want to take care of at the same time. How, how has it been for them? It was really difficult for them. It came at a really difficult time in their lives because they were both just finishing university. Um, they were both in their last year because they'd started at different times and so ended up ending at the same time. It was really difficult because they... Many teenagers would finish university and then go home and reconsider their position and maybe go off and do a gap year or or do all those things that post-grad young people do. But they didn't have those options. They didn't have any of those options. They had to plunge straight into life. They had to find accommodation and employment because they needed an income to survive. They were really tough times because... They were homeless too. They'd lost their home. They'd lost that security base. And it was really difficult as a parent because all you want to do is to give your children the best of things, to give them that base from which to establish their lives, from which to to go and develop and become the best version of themselves. But at that moment in life, I couldn't give them that. I couldn't give them anything. They were out in the world sofa surfing, taking whatever job came their way, finding their way. So it was really hard for them. But now, time on, 10 years on, they're now in their early 30s, I would say that 
time made them so much stronger, made them so much stronger as the adults they now are. It made us stronger as a family as well, because we all had to work through that together, but apart because we were scattered across the the country and there was nowhere for us to come together. It made you feel guilty, Raina, because I I think a lot of us in midlife, we wake up in the night and feel a bit guilty about all the things we might have done for our children or, you know, whether we worked or didn't work. I mean, I certainly had a reckoning of, oh my God, I should have been there or I should have done this. Did you feel any of that? Huge amount of guilt. Parental guilt, I think, never leaves whatever your circumstances in life because you always want the best. You want to give them the best. Um, and we thought we'd created that with the home that we had. We, yeah. we'd, we'd given them that, but then that would, was taken away just as a moment in life when they were quite vulnerable to what happened next. But strangely now, 10 years on, I think we're closer as a family unit than we, we might have been otherwise. They've turned into really quite strong, resilient, capable adults who faced with a problem don't see the problem but see the answers and I think that's what this has given them it's given them an ability to look at life as okay this is difficult but it could be a lot worse so where's the answer to this rather than seeing only the problem I think their thoughts turn towards the answers yeah that's what we all hope for I think but we give our children some sort of resilience in life. Maybe maybe don't take that route to giving them it. But, uh, <laughs> that's what we hope for, I think. Thinking about that home you created, do you ever go back to Snowdonia since you walked out of there? Yes, we do. We do go back occasionally because it's such a beautiful area and um, we loved it. That's why we lived there. But whenever we go back, it's with a tinge of sadness. All those memories come crowding in. And that can be quite difficult sometimes. If you're at a little moment in life when you're feeling unsure or, or a little vulnerable for other reasons, then you need to move forwards, I think. <laughs> now, very excitingly, Gillian Anderson is going to be playing you in the film version of The Salt Path. We love her. She's a very outspoken woman, talks about midlife, one of the first people to talk about menopause and perimenopause, and Jason Isaacs is going to play Moth. It is remarkable. How are you feeling about that, and how involved will you, may you be in that? I think when they first told us who was going to be playing us in a film, I think I was just really shocked that, you know, it would be who it was. I was also a little concerned about Gillian Anderson, because I thought, she's always so perfect. I thought, how is she going to portray that? That sense of being on the path and being completely just thrown into your own resources. But then we did go to see them when they were filming and we went on set. She is absolutely amazing because she caught that sense of wild somehow. And I've got to say, she scruffs up incredibly well. (laughs) (laughs) She's quite tiny though. I interviewed her. She's shorter than me and I'm only five foot two. (laughs) She is tiny, but... Perfectly formed. <laughs> so um, there's a lot going on. You turned 60 this year, I think, as well. Congratulations. Um, and you've said that actually the older you get, the busier you get. What what else is going on at the moment? There's a lot going on. Yeah, it's, it's really strange, isn't it? Well, it does seem to have been the case in my life when other people are sort of like turning things down a bit. I seem to have turned them up to max. And um, yeah, so it does show that we don't need to stop at this time. <laughs> at this point in our lives. So, yeah, the film's just been made. Landlines came out. I've been working with um, a folk band, Kickspan, a big band. They're, um, they're just this incredible group of musicians who'd gathered lots of music from the Southwest and uh, approached me to do a collaboration, a words and music collaboration. I took about five minutes, I think, to look at who was actually in the band before I said yes. And uh, has, having no idea how to create this p- piece of performance prose, because I've never done anything like that in my life. But that's turned out to be one of the most remarkable things to come from the salt bath is, is performing salt lines with them. Because it's been, not just for the audience, I think for us performing it, it's been such an immersive sense of creating a, an audio journey of the Southwest, an audio experience of the Southwest. I watched a bit on YouTube. It's kind of amazing, isn't it? It really does bring it to life. 
It really does. I mean, a recording on YouTube, I think, was recorded in one of the early, early uh, tours. And it's grown and taken on a depth since then. And I've become a lot more confident on the stage as well. <laughs> so that's helped. And now it's it really is a remarkable thing. We're about to set out on um, the fourth tour in November. So that's quite something we're looking forward to. And then next year, I'm working on the fourth book. Wow. Can you give us a hint what the book's about? Oh, it's very early days. I don't know how much I can say, but it's got a lot to do with instinct. Is there more of my beloved Cornwall in it? That's all I need to know. There will be some, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We are the book club episode. What are you reading right now? I've actually just had to tone down how many things I'm reading because when I start to write, I can't read too much because I find it's like that thing when you're you're, oh, you're with somebody who's got a really strong accent and you find yourself picking it yes. up. I find that's what it's like when I'm like mirroring it, isn't it? I'm picking up other people's thought patterns and I think, no, because I have something else to say and it's my voice, not theirs. So I've had to step away just a little bit. I recently read something called, I think it's called Eight Mountains and it's by an Italian writer whose name I've forgotten. And that was that was a wonderful experience of the relationship between two boys and how they grow into men and where life takes them separately. Now, finally, one of the uh, sort of big players in the, all of your books are cups of tea. <laughs> You're always making cups of tea. You love I mean, it's, that seems to be the answer to everything. You've got one there. How do you take yours, Raina, and how many cups are you on a day? When Before we walked the coast path, I used to drink my tea really strong from a pot, always brewed in a pot, or as, as we used to say in our house, mashed in a pot. And it would be strong with milk, with one sugar. Yeah, I, I always drank it that way. But then when we were walking, we couldn't carry milk. So I started drinking it without milk and then I lost the sugar. So now I drink it very, very weak black tea. Literally, I have a mug of hot water and I show it the tea bag. That's what I do. It's the best, isn't it? Like that. It's <laughs> How many a day? I, I don't know if I should tell you that it's quite possibly around about 15. Oh, wow. That's a lot of liquid. <laughs> a lot of tea bags. But you can reuse your tea bag when you drink yeah. it that week. Yeah, I love it. But I think it's like my go-to thing when I'm thinking or when I'm about to do something or when I've just done something. Our wonderful producer, Ben, has just pointed out that Eight Mountains is written by Paolo Cognetti. Uh, I will have said that wrong, but <laughs> should anyone want that? Oh, thank you, Raina, for coming on. I have to say, Trish and I have been a bit fangirly about this. We've been quite excited all week. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much. Just it's been lovely. Oh, thank you. The books have really changed our lives. So thank you for writing them. Well, thank you for reading them. Now, Nostalgia Noodle, a step back in time, a spooky step back in time this week, because we have been mentioning Halloween. It's October. I'm going to sing. I know you like that. All right, go on. If your mansion house needs haunting, just call... Rent a ghost, yeah. You can join in. We've got spooks and ghouls and freaks and fools at Rent Rent a a Ghost. (laughs) (laughs) I think we haven't talked about that in all the episodes. We not the gazillion episodes of this podcast. I don't think we have. Well, I loved it. It like ghosts, isn't it? Because they were from different eras. There was the medieval jester clay pole, and there was whatever all of that mod. Nadia Popov. Yes, played by. Oh, I don't know. Oh, well, it was Sue Nichols, who's Audrey Roberts on Coronation Street. I don't know whether she's still in there because I haven't watched that for decades. But um, it was great, wasn't it? Tell me what you loved about it. It was different, wasn't it? I quite like the idea. I had uh, that dream as a child as well that you'd hold your nose and disappear and then appear somewhere else. Oh, <laughs> like Mr. Ben, yes. Maybe yeah, it's yeah. where the death stuff started. Oh, <laughs> But I tell you what I do like and have been watching as we yes. are talking about ghosts is I've been watching the US version of the BBC's Ghosts. Oh, I haven't tried that. Is it good? Which is just as good. Oh, it's absolutely brilliant. brilliant. And I mean, obviously it doesn't have the plague. <laughs> no. Things like that. But it does have 
prohibition and um they've got a jazz singer it's really good oh, you, you will really it. enjoy it. it's no one famous in it but it's it's just the same kind of humor yeah and it, it, it's almost exactly the same characters as well so you're not straying too far away but me and my 12 year old we have to find things that our 12 year old likes we we have loved the u.s version yeah and there's a new series of the uk version i think on the bbc right now as we speak. Love yes. it. Are we finished now, Trish? Are we done? We're finished. We're finished. We've got through the episode. We've talked about death. We've talked about ghosts. We've You've still about... got your little hot top on, your little, what is I've it, tabard of sorts? Sort of Shetlandy tank top, I'm going to call Our that. Outmaster's geography teacher's tank top. I'm surprised it. you haven't got hot throughout the recording. No, I actually, surprisingly, haven't. But anyway, it's the end. No more chat. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. Um, and we do hope you join us again next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.